0: Um, so let me tell you what you're in store for this morning. Uh, first and foremost, we'll do some announcements. As soon as those come up, maybe we don't have announcements, I don't know. Um, and then there's going to be like, some awkward pauses, maybe a couple of bad jokes. We'll get through this together. Somewhere in the middle, uh, and, and maybe kind of interspersed throughout, is going to be um, what I hope to be a complete and total lack of heresy. Do we have announcements? Slides? Okay. Men's Prayer. Okay, so we are doing Men's Prayer tomorrow morning, uh, 6.30 a.m. at Brent's House, a.k.a. The Manor. Emphasis on man because it's Men's Prayer. Um, There'll be, at the very least, some bacon, maybe even some eggs, biscuits, I don't know, but also prayer. So um, if you're looking for a great way to meet a bunch of uh, cranky, groggy men, this is it. Um, Your opportunity to make friends. Next. Workdays. All right, so um, as this sliver of the room can tell, it's a little bright in here. That's not the love of God shining down upon Ian and Stephen. Um, although it could be, I don't know. Um, but it's the sun, right? And so this giant tall thing lets in a lot of light, and it just sort of cuts a swath through here, like the Zendi laser on the planet Earth in Enterprise. Um, so... <clears throat> I hope two of you have seen that series and know what I'm talking about. So uh, we're going to fix that starting Friday night, uh, December 9th at 6.30. We're going to have a 60-foot cherry picker in here, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, There's also a couple of harnesses, so that means I get to play around a bit, right? So Mario and I are going to be there. Um, And then we're going to pick up again on the 10th at 9 a.m. In addition to fixing this by by putting some tent on, we're going to be changing all the lights around here. And then we're also going to be marking off uh, where the seats are going, and a few other odds and ends. So if you are so inclined, please come out and give us a hand. Right now, uh, it's me, Mario, Brent, and, and Brian. So no pressure, but the rest of you should show up. Um, and let's not make it a, a, a men's party. Um, ladies can, can come up and help. Uh, next. Monos Toys Drive ends today on the 27th. Um, so real quick, uh, for those of you who haven't heard this said at least once in the last five weeks, how long is November? Um, we do a toy drive every year for this children's ministry in Colombia called Manos that's attached to a church uh, down there. And, and the toy drive is significant for one very important reason. Not because kids get toys. Right? That's not the point of Christmas. But these toys give the church an end into the community where these kids live, where they get to go into the homes and proclaim the gospel because they've, they've come with gifts. All right. So um, if you feel so inclined, like pick up a toy today and, and bring it uh, here. I don't know what, what we do with that um, or, or drop 10 bucks in the offering basket. Give it to Mario and Ketty. There you go. Um, and if you want to donate mon- monetarily to that, financially, um, a.k.a., then uh, just put a little note on the money, whether it's a post-it note or a, a piece of gum wrapper or whatever that says Manus, so we know that we don't get to hold on to that. We got to pass that on to Manus. OK, next thing ladies night okay so um Allie and maddie grace are working really hard on uh different events for uh the ladies in the church to get together and sort of be a a, a, a lady friendly alternative to men's prayer so friday december 2nd at 2 uh, 7 p.m i almost said 2 p.m that would be wrong um there will be a ladies night where's that going to be At Maddie Grace's house. I'm told there will be a Facebook event posted by the end of the day today, maybe even by the end of service if she's not paying attention. And uh, you'll get an address, you'll get all the good details, what's going to be happening there. So, Ladies' Night, December 2nd. Do you want to get baptized? Uh, come see me. At Aletheia, we believe in uh, believer's baptism, right? So sprinkled as a child is a cute little ceremony where folks can can say they are committed to you, to see you grow up and love the Lord. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they come together as a church and say they're going to support the family um, and, and consecrate this child to the Lord. But here at Aletheia, we believe in a baptism following conversion by immersion. Conversion by immersion. Um, so, if, uh, if that might apply to you, come out and talk to me. Talk to uh, Brent, Brian, Kevin, one of the elders. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about baptism, answer questions, and encourage you to get baptized. Um, I, no idea when that's going to be yet. We're going to get a number of people together so we can uh, throw you all in in one fell swoop. Uh, not all of you at once, just one at a time on the same date, just to clarify. Anything else? That's it. Okay, um, so, um, let's preach. Okay, so... This morning, we're going to be finishing up, or not finishing up, but continuing, rather, our Grand Narrative series, which is based off of um, this little book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you've missed the explanation for what that is, it's a children's Bible— that does a uniquely good job of pointing kids to Jesus throughout all the stories in the Scripture. So from Genesis to Revelation, it talks about how that story either says that Jesus is coming or that Jesus came and that Jesus is great. And so um, this is significant for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, it discourages us when, when we see that Jesus is the center of the story. It discourages us from having a selective interpretation of the Bible. A selective interpretation treats the Bible like a pile of loose threads. You pick and choose the ones you want, throw away the others to avoid getting tangled up in things you might not like or things you don't necessarily agree with or whatever the case may be. But instead, we want you to see that it's not actually just a pile of threads. Right? The Bible is, is a tapestry, and all of the threads weave together to tell a story about how God has, des- has determined to rescue us from sin through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you start to pull threads out one by one because you, you like them particularly or you want to snip this out or whatever, soon you, you lose the point of the tapestry because the image is different, right? Um, but we don't want to do that. We can't pick and choose the threads. Second, if we see the Bible for what it is, which is this grand narrative held together by Christ. Did I drink really loud? Um, sorry. Then we can improve our understanding of how to read, interpret, and implement the text. So real quick, let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Where did there we go. Um, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So if then we are to use the word of God in a way that renews our minds and realigns our hearts, we have to understand its foundation. That is, we must see that Jesus is the center of it all. That's why Kevin has been repeating over and over and over again that the great characters of the Bible are simply shadows and nothing more. Shadows can be seen, but they're nothing more than a faint representation of something greater. Jesus is that something greater. So here's an example of how this, uh, how this helps us understand from a story that we covered a few weeks ago, David and Goliath. So, growing up, you were probably taught that David and Goliath is a great example of how um, someone with great faith can stand up to a great foe and overcome it by the power of God. Now, that, that interpretation of the story is, is not so wrong that it would be um, like heresy, right? But I would say that it's not as strong an interpretation if you were to see that David is a shadow of Christ. And rather than being the hero of the story, represented by the hero of the story, we are more likely King Saul or the nation of Israel who stands there dumbfounded because they're intimidated by their foe. And so we need David, we need Jesus to step in on our behalf to slay our enemies for us over and over again throughout the old testament the scriptures whisper his name he's coming this is what it's going to be like when he comes and over and over again the new testament shouts his praise look at what he's done how valuable is he and so this morning we're going to be examining the parable of the hidden treasure the verse that maddie grace read for us by the way she got engaged last week i don't know if you guys knew that and before that, I'm just going to detour for a second. Before that, Ian and Kristen got engaged. Right? And there's just so much, like, exciting stuff going on in the life of this church and, like, the people who go to this church. And, and as one of the pastors, seeing the church grow that way, seeing people um, develop their relationship that way, it just brings me a, a, a sort of joy that's just unrivaled, except for, you know, my family, um, who are fantastic, by the way. Okay, so anyway, uh, Matthew 13, 44. That's it, one verse. Um, I think this is probably going to be one of the shortest sermons I've ever delivered. You're welcome. All right, so uh, let's look at the text one more time. So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So here's what I want to show from this short verse. First, I want to frame the parable properly and talk about how not to interpret what you see there. Okay, because how not to interpret it is almost as important as how we ought to read it. Second, I want to talk a little bit about why Jesus is so valuable. And I'll I'll explain briefly why the kingdom and Jesus are the same thing, like really briefly. And then third, I I kind of want to provide a a bit of an exhortation. Um, I I want to suggest to you how you might use um the the idea that i'm trying to communicate to you today uh, as you as you leave out today and and enter the real world again on monday morning okay um so let me pray um and because i've had a little bit of coffee and so i need to settle and we'll jump into this i don't know if you can tell there's also like this is mostly full so hang on um heavenly father you are great you are mighty. You are wise, and you have given us your word that we might understand more about you, um, that we might see your goodness, find value in you, and devote ourselves fully and completely to your reign and rule in our life. And God, I just pray that um, as I as I work to deliver this sermon, that um, that you would keep me in line, keep me in check that that what I'm saying would not muddy the point of the Bible, and that if I am wrong in anything that I say, that people would look to your scripture for clarification uh, and for correction of what I might say, and that that nothing I say today might detract from um, the value of a relationship with you in the eyes of the people who are here today. Be with us this morning. Help us to understand something a little more about you as we leave today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so first things first, how do we not read this passage? Well, considering the entirety of the parable is that a man sold everything he owned in order to purchase a great treasure buried in a field, it almost seems as though we're hearing that we have to work for the treasure. There's something we have to do in order to earn and own that treasure. And so as we begin to sift through the truth of this passage, keep in mind that Parables have a tendency to be a bit unclear by design. Sometimes the meanings may be a little more straightforward than others or a little bit easier to figure out, but all in all, they're allegorical by nature. And Jesus himself even says that parables are designed to be difficult to understand. When he gives the first one, he pulls his, his disciples aside and is like, hey, look, here's a little secret. This is not as straightforward as they think. Let me explain it to you, okay? Okay. So what exactly is the treasure? This is pretty easy. We know the kingdom of heaven. We know that the treasure is the kingdom of heaven because he says that flat out, right? Um, Easy point. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The core of Jesus's message, right? So the, the core of his ministry is to go around proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent and believe. The concept of the kingdom of heaven is... Pretty important, but if you if you read carefully through the New Testament, you see John the Baptist and Jesus and others talk about this kingdom of heaven. But there's never like an asterisk by that paragraph that you jump down. It's like here's what they mean by the kingdom of heaven, because it was understood what was meant by the audience. It was understood because his audience knew the Old Testament, and so what they knew about the kingdom of God was given to them through reading the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say about a kingdom? Well, it's kind of wrapped up. There's, there's a hundred places we could go, but for the sake of brevity, it's kind of wrapped up in the, the Davidic covenant, right? Where, where God comes to David through Samuel and says this. We throw up 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. Now, there's a couple other things being said here. I'm kind of Pulling out what I want. Um, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. That's Solomon, right? Um, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever okay so we talk about Solomon but then there's this idea of the kingdom being established forever and later on you see in this uh in this covenant more talk about an an offspring that will rule and reign forever well we know Solomon died we know that that David died so it's not either of them it's pointing towards this character called the Messiah who Jesus is Okay, and so the, the idea that there would be a king who rules forever established this idea of a kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven. And there's all sorts of things that happen in that kingdom, right? So um, the, the the poor hear the good news, the, the dead are raised, there's all kinds of like healing and things that happen, renewal and restoration that comes from this kingdom. But the idea of the kingdom and the king are intricately woven together you can't separate the value and the meaning from either one of those because wherever the king is wherever he is in charge that is his kingdom so when we talk about the the kingdom of god being at hand we're talking about this messiah he has shown up his rule and reign is beginning and so um i I could i could like Do a a whole other conversation about the already and not yet of how God is is simultaneously reigning, but yet not yet having restored creation. That's, That's a concept for a different day. But just understand that when he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying that I've come, I'm the Messiah, and I'm here to rule. Right? So that's probably like the messiest explanation of that ever. Just trust me, stay with me. Okay, so when he likens that kingdom himself to a treasure buried in the field, he's ascribing great value to that. But he's, is he saying that we can just go out and buy our way into it? I mean, it kind of seems like what he's saying. This guy goes out and sells everything, comes back and buys the field, and then he has the treasure. Let's look elsewhere in the Bible to see what Jesus says about this, to kind of clarify it. So John Piper said that, um, Says about the parables that if the meaning seems a bit murky, look to Jesus for clarification. So let's do that. Um, we know contextually, from what I'm about to show you, that he is not saying that we can purchase the kingdom of God. So Jesus makes it pretty clear elsewhere in Matthew, in fact. So let's look at Matthew 5 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew 19, 23 through 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So in both of these quotes from Jesus, there's a recurring theme of need. You have to recognize that a part, like regardless of anything you might have, whether that's a mountain of wealth or uh, innumerable assets or, or whatever you got going on, you're a really nice person or whatever, if you don't recognize that you still have a great need that you cannot meet, then you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot have that relationship, be a citizen of that kingdom. We have to accept that we can't earn it. Um, That means accepting that God does not owe us some service because of the price we pay to be near him. He's not a celebrity offering access in exchange for a fee. So clearly then, Jesus is not contradicting himself in this parable, saying now that we should max out our credit cards and sell our possessions in order to own a little piece of heaven. Instead, what Jesus is, is suggesting is that we must see the kingdom of heaven as worth in and of itself whatever it costs us to be a part of it. So we have to see that it is so valuable that everything else is secondary. The Jesus Storybook Bible says it this way. Jesus said "Come home. coming home to God, I'm going to read it like I read it to my son, coming home to God is as wonderful as finding a treasure. You might have to dig before you find it, you might have to look before you see it, you might even have to give up everything you have to get it, but being where God is, being in his kingdom, that's more important than anything else in all the world. It's worth anything you have to give up, Jesus told them, because God is the real treasure. Being a part of God's kingdom and having a relationship with God is worth whatever is required of you to to get it, to maintain it, right? It's given to us freely. We see that over and over and over again that it comes through faith, and faith is a gift. But there's a sacrifice required of us. We see this, uh, we see Jesus acknowledging that following him carries a cost. Look at Luke 14, 25 through 33. Uh, Oh, otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a far way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does it cost to follow Jesus? What does it cost to enter the kingdom of God and have a relationship with God? On the one hand, we see that it's not for sale. And yet, on the other, we see that it can cost us dearly. Simply put, we have to submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ. That's the price we pay. We give up our preferences. We give up our desires. We give up our needs. We give up our right to define for ourselves what is good for us because we should see that Christ is something greater. All of the good things that you have, all of the the money or success or rewards or accolades or lack thereof, pale in comparison to how great, how sweet it is to have a relationship with Christ, but it requires that we submit to him. The man in the parable finds the treasure and he wants the treasure and so he goes out with joy and sells all that he has so that he can buy the field. He doesn't do it because it's required of him. He did it with joy because he wanted to, because he saw value in having that treasure. Everything else he had was secondary to owning it. For us, we have to make ourselves living sacrifices for him, as Paul calls us to do in Romans 12. We don't necessarily know what that will require of us, right? I mean, I haven't been called to a life of asceticism, selling everything that I have and and being poor so that I can preach the gospel every single day. But the Bible does make it pretty clear that following Jesus does not lead to an easy life as a matter of course, right? Just because you have faith, just because you are a citizen of the kingdom does not mean you're going to be rich and comfortable and happy with your circumstances. Happy in that they will give you joy. In fact, none of the apostles enjoyed wealth, status, or comfort as they set out to fulfill the Great Commission. In our parable of the hidden treasure, the man had to first purchase the field in order to get the treasure. It required him to sell everything he owned, but he did it with joy because he knew the treasure was worth it. But do we see Jesus as worth the sacrifice? Is there something that that we cling to, and the answer is almost certainly yes, where we are robbing ourselves of some bit of joy that the Lord would have for us because we want to have Jesus and Jesus this thing. We want to have Jesus and acceptance with all of our friends. We wanna have Jesus and the career of our dreams. We wanna have Jesus and straight A's. We wanna have Jesus and whatever. There are plenty of areas in our life where we're willing to sacrifice something in order to get something. Better, right? You sacrifice anywhere from two to ten years of your life on an education in order to obtain some level of, of knowledge and, and academic success that you might have a better career than you would have if you went straight out of high school and, you know, whatever. You sacrifice eating whatever you want so you can be more fit or live longer or whatever it is that makes you people starve yourselves for those bodies. I have a dad bod proud of it. Um, You sacrifice effort or money on pursuing romantic relationships in the hopes of getting married and having a family. And if you're not sacrificing those things, then stop wondering why you're single. Just throwing that out there. Everything we do is on some level because we have determined that it's good for us. We have determined it is good for us. Here's an example, right? So my wife recently asked slash insisted maybe more towards insisted, that I plan a weekend getaway for us while our parents were in town to watch our son. Now, cards on the table. Normally, my wife reads through all my sermons, make sure my jokes are appropriate, and that I'm not throwing anybody into the bus. She didn't get to read this one, so I'm on my own up here. Um, so, she tells me she wants to take this trip, so I start the process of researching, and it is a lot of pressure because I asked her for some pointers, and she's like, no. That's my story, you can tell yours later. Oh wait, you can't. Okay, so I researched bed and breakfasts, hotels, campsites, restaurants, attractions, everything from Jacksonville to Daytona trying to find the right getaway. I finally found one in Amelia Island by chance. It happened to be available. Trying to find something on a three-day weekend is very difficult Um, so I, I booked this place. Now, why did I go through all the effort and stress of planning? Why did I spend all of that money, so much money, on a bed and breakfast? It was worth it, honey. I'm not saying that it wasn't. I'm getting to that point. Just be patient. Like, why did I, why did I put forth all of this effort on planning this thing? I mean, it was a lot of work and a lot of stress because I, I have a really bad track record of trying to surprise my wife and then blowing it. Like, I I got her this really nice uh, Waterford Crystal vase one year. Uh, It wasn't a vase, it was a a decanter. And she opens it up, and Waterford Crystal is, like, pretty good antique stuff, right? And this came, like, straight from the factory, like, it was picked up in whatever country that is and brought over. And she opens it up on Christmas in front of her parents, and she goes, what is this? Because I planned wrong, right? It's not her fault. I, I picked wrong, because I didn't put enough effort into it. So I'm a little stressed about getting this right. Why, I'm sorry, this is like group therapy. So why did I go through the stress of planning? Because one of the things that I value most in life, here's the kicker, honey, just stay with me. One of the things I value most in life is my wife's happiness. She asked that we took some time away to relax on a romantic getaway. And so I tried to provide that for her because her happiness was at least as valuable as my time and our money. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Like there's no question all of the stress and, and effort that I put into it, uh, and by some miracle it worked, was worth it on the, on the other end, coming home and seeing her being happy that we were able to spend some quality time together, right? Which I finally figured out what quality time means. It's been 10 years, I finally got there. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> So I'm not saying, right, so when I say that, like, we, we try to determine what's best, for, it, I'm not saying that I ran this all through some calculator where I was like, hmm, this amount of variables and her happiness, is it at least as much, like, that, it's not that impersonal. But I did weigh effort against reward to an extent, right, I can't help but do that. It was easy for me to see this as, valuable, as a valuable use of my time, effort, and money because I can see the smile on my wife's face when we pull up to the bed and breakfast. I can feel her hug me and hear her tell me how excited she is on the, to be on this getaway with me. And while it's easy for me to see this as valuable, it's not easy to put in the effort. My tendency is to be selfish. And, and while I love my wife's happiness, I'd much rather use my free time doing something completely different and a little more pointless like binge-watching Netflix. I can't help it. They put an entire season of a show up there at once. I need to finish it, right? That's what I would rather do with my time, but that's not what I need to do. I need to submit myself to the burden of planning and caring for and whatever in order to see my wife happy. I recognize that's better. that it's better for me to pursue her heart because God has told me so and showed me that it's better for me, right? So, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Proverbs 18, 22. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Meaning, do the same thing. Sacrifice yourself for your wife. Ephesians five twenty five. I work to make my wife happy because God tells me it's for my good. It's the role he's given me to lead and love my wife sacrificially. The problem many of us have, however, is that we don't see Christ as being valuable enough to give up our own preferences, right? It's easy for me to say I can I can sacrifice things to make my wife happy. I don't do it all the time, I don't do it perfectly, but when I do it, it's easy to see the payoff. I can remind myself openly like really easily about how happy she was. But is the same true of my devotion to Christ? Do we see Christ? The problem is that we don't see Christ as being valuable enough to give up our own preferences, let alone everything else with joy. We don't believe God's word when it says that some things are bad for us and some things are good for us. We don't want to submit ourselves to that. We don't believe God when he tells us that uh, that he has good in store for us because we are often so determined on defining our own good for our lives. The psalmist calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good, but I struggle with that and I, I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. Like I'm just Kind of feeling the crowd real quick. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that. I struggle to understand how following Christ is good for me because I specifically struggle with remembering who I am apart from and because of Christ. So that's that's two things, right? So who I am apart from Christ and who I am because of Christ. Why does it matter, and how are they related to seeing Jesus as a treasure? Well, because it's hard for us to see something as good for us if we don't know what makes it good for us. So first, let's talk about who I am apart from Christ, who we are apart from Christ. Over and over, the Bible calls attention to the fact that humanity is totally depraved, right? Back to this idea that there's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy of the kingdom of God. We are totally depraved. That means there's nothing we can do to fully make up for the guilt of sin. My favorite example of this, and kind of an answer to both of those questions, who I am apart from and because of Christ, comes from Zechariah 3, 1 through 8. And so this is uh, part of a series of visions given to the prophet Zechariah. Um, it's It's a vision of the high priest Joshua coming into the Holy of Holies. Now, there are two very important things in that setup. One, he's the high priest. He's the guy that makes the atoning sacrifice, the guilt sacrifice, for all of Israel on the Day of Atonement. So his job is to follow the Old Testament law. He's supposed to bathe himself multiple times, wash the sacrifice, put on pure white garments, and be as pure as he possibly can be before he goes into the Holy of Holies, which is the innermost room of the temple. It's supposed to be where he goes and stands before the Lord and and repents on behalf of the nation he's their he's their mediator he's their their go-between to the throne and he's supposed to be pure white and just in case this doesn't work because Israel knows that there's still a there's still a chance that we don't get it quite right and God will strike him down they tie a cord around his waist that way if he dies they can drag his body out not have to go in there so that, that's the setup for this. Just imagine Joshua getting ready to walk in behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies. And this is what Zechariah says. Then he, the angel who brought him this vision, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. So let me pause right there. Remember what I just said. Like he's supposed to be dressed in pure white linen. He's supposed to be pure before he goes before the Lord. And how does the Lord see him? Filthy. Specifically, the language that's being used there is not as simple as filthy, but specifically that he was covered in excrement you need a thesaurus, there's one on your phone. I'm not going to go any farther. And that's significant because to be in contact with excrement made not only the garment unclean, but the person itself through and through was unclean because they'd come in contact with that. There was a, a ritual that he was supposed to go through in order to become pure again, ceremonially pure. And he hadn't done that. He's, he's gone through all this work. He stands before the Lord. Second thing that's important in this is... That Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, you know who Satan is, right? That's a pretty easy one. Sunday school answers. Who is the angel of the Lord? In, In seminary terms, this is called a Christophany or a theophany. This is an appearance of Jesus before he was born to Mary. This isn't some random angel who's just shown up on the scene and is there to accept the sacrifice. This is the Lord Himself who has come to receive the sacrifice. And Satan is standing there ready to accuse, right? So there's the prosecution and there's the defense. The prosecution is Satan. He's got a good game, right? Look, he's covered in excrement. He is filth. He is unclean. He is unfit to stand before you. And the defense what does the defense have? Filthy garments. And then what happens? The angel of the Lord said to them, Sorry, I lost my place. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments. He shuts up the prosecution and directs the jury to change his clothes remove the filthy garments, and to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, because Zechariah is like, I'll just step right in there, right? Give him a turban, a a symbol of kingship, of, of royalty. Give him a turban. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access to the throne of God, right, parentheses, to the throne of God, I will give you right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men of a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Again, promising the Messiah to come. And so this beautiful thing happens where Joshua is guilty. God has no reason to accept his sacrifice, no reason to accept him in his presence. Satan has a lockdown case, right? If this were a Law and Order episode, it would be 30 seconds. And the judge steps in and says, I am declaring you righteous. Joshua didn't walk into the Holy of Holies righteous because of what he did before he got there. He was declared righteous by God in sp- of his state of unrighteousness. That's us. That's that's me. I'm pointing to a blank screen. That's that's me. Apart from God, I am hopeless. I can can try to do all the right things. I I can pray and study my Bible 24 out of 24 hours a day, seven days out of seven days of a week. I could try and never ever commit an egregious and obvious sin. And yet, I would still stand before God, regardless of all that I had tried to do to be holy before him, covered in filth, the filth of my sin. But God, being rich in mercy, has made it possible for me through Jesus to be declared righteous. Jesus was our atonement and because of him, we're able to stand before God, to have a holy relationship with him. To, to, sorry, not holy, to, to have a relationship with him. Um, he has given us right of access. Ultimately though, right, so so we know looking back, and, and, and Zechariah didn't know this at the time, he, he couldn't quite fill in all the blanks, he just had his prophecy to work with, but we know that those sacrifices that, that Joshua brought in and that every high priest brought in on behalf of Israel meant nothing, right? Uh, is it Jeremiah where God says, I, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, why do I need your sacrifices? They're an act of submission, right? But ultimately, those sacrifices are not what were going to save us. What was necessary was the thing those sacrifices pointed to, which was God's servant, the branch coming on our behalf and being broken so that we could be presented to the Lord as holy and blameless. That's what makes Jesus so, so valuable. He is our salvation. He restores us to a right relationship with God and brings us not only the kingdom of God, but into his very family, as adopted sons and daughters. That's why Joshua gets the turban. That's why he's given some royal status. Is because he's brought into the royal court, not as a member of the court, but as the family. Why? Because right? it wasn't an easy thing for him to come and, and die for us. So why did he do that? So I want to take us to one last passage as I close up this morning. So let's look at Isaiah 53, 11, and 12. this is a short passage as part of a a longer prophecy of the Messiah, right? Um, Again, it's the person that God promised to send in order to fix the problem of sin. And this is a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled perfectly. And so Isaiah records at the end of this passage, out of the anguish of his soul, There's so much going on in those two verses, but I just want to focus on a couple of things, right? So again, it's not this endless parade of sacrifices that made God satisfied with us and earned us righteousness. It was Jesus who willingly submitted himself to be our guilt offering and take away the guilt of sin. Why did he do that? Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Because as he's being broken, as he's being crushed, as he's taking on the weight of all of our sin and and suffering the separation from the Father because he hangs as a transgressor, he is satisfied because he looks out and he sees his treasure. Making the many accounted righteous his bride. He's purchasing his bride. As he hung on the cross, he found joy in his suffering because he was doing it for us. Jesus is our treasure, and he we are his treasure. He didn't try to cling to his divine privilege. Instead, he clung to the cross. He set aside his divine privilege in order to become our atonement. If we know this to be true, there is nothing that he cannot ask of us and nothing we should not be willing to give so that we can be nearer to the one who made us righteous before God. So in a moment, um, we're, we're going we're to take communion. Communion is important for Christians because it's a representation of this sacrifice. My body broken for you. That's the bread that we pull apart or the crackers that we break up if you're gluten-free. My blood poured out for you. That's the the wine in some churches here. It's it's grape juice because we're cheap and we can't afford uh, good wine. Nobody wants to take communion with bad wine. But this is a reflection of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And so we do this every week at Aletheia. And, And that might seem a little bit too often for you, but, but it isn't for me because it, it's a weekly reminder, at least, a time for me to stop and reflect on the weight of my sin and what it took for me to be righteous before God so that I can realign my heart, at least weekly, if I'm not uh, holy enough to try it during the week, right, like I ought to, um, so that I can reflect on the weight of my sin and the price that God paid for me and be thankful that Jesus is my savior, that that he paid the price on my behalf. And so as we take part in communion here in just a second, I want you to take a moment before you eat the bread and the juice to pray. Consider what, what aspects of your life might be a little bit different if you understood that everything you do ought to reflect, ought to seek to reflect the glory of your Savior and the value of the treasure that you have in Christ? What, what aspect of your relationships or your, your habits or your, uh, your, your career, your aspirations, what aspects might be different if you fully and completely submitted them to Christ rather than trying to own them on your own apart from Christ? what are you holding on to that's, that's preventing you from seeing Jesus as, as this valuable? Um, so I'm going to pray um, and then we'll be done. All right. Father, I am, I am hopeless apart from the saving work of the cross. I I am guilty of sin, even even as I try to be um, good, try to try to walk a path of righteousness. God, you you know that that is not possible for me. You look past the the good apart from Christ, and you see filth. And so, you still call for uh, for us to repent and to believe in the gospel. And God, I just pray that um, that you would. Way on my heart, way on the hearts of this church, uh, the the constant knowledge that we were bought at a great price, and that the the treasure of Christ is worth everything that we have, everything that we want, everything that we could get that that the joy you provide, the joy that we can feel um, by being at your side, is greater than anything else. And Father, I just pray as we um, finish up this series in the coming weeks that we would continue to be reminded of the great value of Jesus Christ and submit to his lordship anew every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.